Hello and welcome to the AdFontes podcast. My name is Ansi Camel. I am an editor at large at the journal AdFontes, and I am joined by my two co-hosts, Colin Chan Redimer, the poetry editor at AdFontes, and Reese Laverty, the senior editor. Wait, no, you had a title change? No, not no, 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 no. <laughs> if in doubt, assume I have. That's that's, okay, that's the mind. attitude here. No, the senior editor of the whole operation, uh, gentlemen. It is good to be here with you. It's good to be here with you, Anzi. And, mm-hmm. you know, here we are. We started with confusion about who had what titles, <laughs> and it's been two years, and we're we're ending with confusion about titles. So yeah, you've, that's you've, right. That's right. I, you've I captained managed... the ship very consistently. <laughs> that's exactly right. And Colin, I think it's worth worth mentioning for our listeners, Colin is, is speaking in the past tense because this will be my last episode as a co-host of the AdFontes podcast. Um, I think, you know, probably for some of our listeners and, and certainly to Colin Reese and I, it's just become clear that with, you know, all of my obligations elsewhere, I, I simply haven't been able to devote the time to this podcast in the, over the past several months that it really deserves. Um, and so I'm going to take a step back. I'm not leaving AdFontes. I'm still an editor at large. I'm still with Davenant. Um, so none of that's changing, but, but just, you know, I'll be stepping back from this podcast as a, as a co-host. So, and we should say that, you know, we'll, we'll do a little bit of reminiscence at the end of this episode, but we want to mm-hmm. say up front for those of you who don't stick around to the end, cause we know that's, you know, a lot of you, uh, you know, we're not, uh, we're not disappearing as a podcast. We're going to take our normal break for August. So we take mm-hmm. a break in August. I think we take a break in February as well. We're going to come back in September. We talked about just replacing Anzi, you know, with a newer, better version of Anzi. So I don't know if we got Fahim or Anzi Senior or something like that. You no, know, yeah, not a newer, better, an older, more vintage version. Anzi Camel Senior, <laughs> Doctor Anzi Camel Senior. But but we we having thought about that, realized we've seen a lot of podcasts sort of go through this this kind of transition before, and we didn't think that made a ton of sense. So there's going to be a new format. We're not sure exactly what it's going to look like. It's still going to be an editors and writers uh, podcast for for the foreseeable future. That's still the plan. Mm-hmm. We will be back in September uh, with with you know the Ad Fontes content that you love. Now with more Fontes. <laughs> <laughs> po- launching a podcast in t- 2020 was like opening a disco in like 1970. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ride that wave. Everybody, everybody that I know was like. Okay, the pandemic is on. It's time to launch a podcast. <laughs> well, so we're probably in like a you know a top five percent or less, maybe still going. So I think we uh, I think we congratulate ourselves uh, on that front, definitely. But before yeah. we get too far into reminiscence and yeah. banter, which we don't do much of, no, but we're going to do a little bit today at the end. Don't touch Anzi, it, right. We have a topic, don't we? We have a topic, and you know this topic. I'll say it. It kind of is bringing. I'm coming full circle. Because um, one of the first things I because, wrote... Because was, this is the natural conclusion of Protestantism, this topic is... No, because because <laughs> there's just like with God, there's an exitus and a reditus. There's, a, there's an emanation and a return. I was emanated from what we're going to talk about, and I returned over the past couple of weeks. Um, but uh, today we're going to be talking about megachurch evangelicalism. The power, I think the power of megachurch evangelicalism... And uh, I'm going to kick it to Colin in just a second, but I wanted to say that when I was, uh, one of the first things I wrote after I became um, editor-in-chief of the Davenant Press back in the day was that first things article about, I think they titled Mm. it Catholicism Made Me Protestant. Mm. And when I wrote that, I was very sort of like triggered 
about mm-hmm. megachurch evangelicalism. And I am proud to say that I've overcome my triggering. Oh. And uh, so now I think it's fitting that I, you know, at the, at the sort of conclusion of, of this, we, we come back and we talk about so, it. So. so Catholicism made you Protestant and first things made you megachurch. So I'm taking away that. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> not, bad, not bad. What a trajectory. So no, but when you say evangelical megachurch, you don't mean evangelical megachurch. You mean hot dog church. <laughs> That's right, Colin. Okay, so take it take it away. Tell us, like, Colin goes to one of these churches, uh, one of those churches, I mean, and he calls it hot dog church. Uh, so, Colin, you know, tell us, what do you mean by that? What, well, so, what you know, some people here? might think that this is embarrassing or offensive. And if you know, if that's you, some of my best to, friends go to hot dog church. Yeah, I I go to hot dog church, and I love hot dog church. My my daughter, it was actually quite warm this week at hot dog church because you know we're getting a little bit of that heat wave here in California. It's July, things are getting you know it's a little little warm, and my daughter says, and she's five, as we're walking back to the car, she says, I'm a hot dog. And I said, that's right. It's <laughs> a hot dog church. You know, you, a you, well go to hot dog, child. you go to hot dog church, you put on a Hawaiian shirt in July. You know, yeah. that's that's so, hot dog church. When you say hot dog, you don't mean like, like when I say that to people, people think that it has a, a negative connotation. I sort of took it as a description. It's like hot dogs have universal appeal. Everyone likes them. They're all American. Whereas you know, it sounds, kind of, it sound could be like cheap, processed, bit nasty. That could be how it's. Taken. I love hot dogs. Americans love hot dogs. I don't. None of that is what I think of when I think of hot dogs. I think of an Oscar Mayer wiener. You know, I want to put mustard on it. I want to sit down at a ball game. I want to walk out of hot dog church. I want to walk into hot dog church with an iced orange mocha in my hand and I want to walk out of hot dog church and I want the donut wall to greet me so that yeah, I the can California donut thing. We were just in California, my family, cause I, my mom's family's out there. Every single mega church we went to, there was donuts after the service. It was, were they it was on a weird. wall with little pegs where they were hanging no, on the no, like hanging, hanging from a string? No. Like a, that's a Bay you know, area, that's a Bay area innovation. Don't, uh, don't uh, step on the time honored traditions of orange County. Colin. Coming okay. to a, coming to a hot dog church near you. The That's donut right. wall. <laughs> so, but, but yeah, so like why, why is, why is, um, I mean, cause when we were shopping this, this topic, I mean, what, what were the reasons why you guys wanted to talk about it? Like, why is it worth talking about megachurch evangelicalism? Cause I think for a lot of our listeners and fans of Davenant and so forth, it's like Davenant <clears throat> represents the sort of non evangelical megachurch protestantism right mm-hmm. like we're the the people who are rooted in tradition and we like liturgy and we you know read a bunch of dead dutch guys that no one's ever heard of or whatever right so like why why, why are we talking now about like i don't know rick warren and whoever else is hip now all right reese well i i obviously have something of an outsider interest on this because we don't really have megachurches in the uk um or like the the standard for what counts as a mega church is is low. Um, so, like my church, we have a three hundred odd members and probably like four hundred ish, maybe a bit above that, on a Sunday morning. Um, we are almost certainly one of the bigger evangelical churches, uh, one of the biggest in our group of churches, probably one of the biggest. I was going to say that is an English mega church, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we have a fairly big building, it's a community center, a cafe. And actually, recently, a friend of a friend who was moved to the area was church searching came to our church one Sunday. I was actually not there that Sunday, and I um, 
uh, spoke to someone else who bumped into him, and he's like sort of classic English conservative Anglican, um, and uh, he had a great time, thankfully, but one of his feedback was, yeah, um, it felt a bit American. Um, <laughs> which I think you meant like it had a big building um, and people wore like lanyards with name tags on and said hi um, but so <laughs> and so for me there's, there's an outside level of fascination in that but there's a commonality in that basically in the UK I think all the the energy and all the orthodoxy largely it doesn't have to be this way I don't think you have to be an evangelical to be a small orthodox Christian but basically the energy and the orthodoxy and whatever money there might be is all in uh, evangelicalism and I see a similarish thing in the states where like it or not people say oh there's more you know rad trads going to these SSPX Roman Catholic churches and but like you're talking about like tiny numbers really in the grand scheme of things when you look mm-hmm. at the numbers of uh, congregants and money and whatever the energy still seems to be in um non-denominational mega churchism you know people can get people in our circles get hyped about the PCA and whatever but like you know numbers wise it's it's tiny someone out there's going to you know, stat me, but I don't care. Don't stat me. Um, but, um, like it or not, that seems to be where things are right now. And so it's a phenomenon worthy of discussion and interest. And it's, it's not a phenomenon disconnected from or that we don't overlap with at, at Davenant, and despite Nancy's justified comment, people see us as a kind of alternative to that. The fact is that we've got a lot of people come into Davenant and are interested in what we do who are from that world in one way or another. Yeah. yeah, I, I mean, I, I would say one other thing that that I I mean when I sort of mention hot dog church, I think there's a there's a like gregarious American ability to sort of laugh at oneself that you that you see when you know if somebody's like go, I want to go to the baseball game and eat a hot dog, you know, I think a lot of people who are in the the professional classes or whatever who do go to these churches, you know. Look, not every church is Tim Keller's church where you have people who are, you know, playing for the New York Philharmonic, you know, performing on stage. You know, it's like the guy who's pretty good at guitar. And, you know, you you scrape together $30,000 a year or whatever, and he's your worship leader. And, you know, he gives you some nice licks on a Sunday morning to, like, whatever the pop... You know, he's not writing the music himself. And that's fine. Like, that's... And it's it's beautiful in its, in its way. And the ability... But it's also, you know... It's a little, it's a little more like it's more like a hot dog at a at a baseball game than it is like you know going to the to the Met, um, and that's fine. That's a, it's an expression of the, the the faith of the community. I would say, why does it matter? Yeah, I mean, what Reese is talking about is summarized pretty well by this Twitter interaction I just had with James Wood. Um, he was commenting on how all these people are saying that the nuns are are the ex evangelicals, that they're the people who left evangelicalism because it's because of the politics of evangelicalism or whatever. And it turns out, you know, he, I don't, I didn't look into the details, but he was sort of quoting a piece of data that talked about how that's not actually true. Um, you know, that, that most of the, you know, most of the ex evangelicals are a relatively small movement of people kind of leaving evangelicalism, but getting a lot of attention for it. In general, the people who've left the churches are mainlines. Um, it's the children of the mainline. These are, these are my peers growing up. And, um, you know, that means that the churches that are left, as we said, that are Orthodox are the evangelical churches. And what I find going to these, you know, big evangelical churches is I find a lot of former mainline families there mm. who, who are faithful. Mm. And, you know, I think they're looking for 
something that's that's a little bit deeper and they're looking for you know some real intellectual engagement and they tend to find it online so i think i would be I, I, we don't have the data on this but you know maybe you're you're out there and you're a listener and you can tell us or you're were you were you're, if you're a christian and your parents and grandparents were christians were your parents and grandparents going to churches that were sort of evangelicalish or were they at some point in your family line mainline and now you're evangelical um and of course, that's going to have a change of what we mean by evangelical nowadays. And, and even 5, 10, 20, 50 years from now, the meaning of this term, I think, is going to shift significantly as you see the influx of these families, like mine, into evangelicalism more broadly. And that's not to say evangelicalism was sort of bad before we got there. That's going to be better. No, no, no. It's just this is the, the sort of natural sociological shifts that you see happening um, over, over well, time. And in a certain way, I think that, that that's actually more similar to the way things were like in the mid 20th century, where the, where the, the, the kind of mainline evangelical split um, was less sort of stark. I mean, I was just, you know, like I said, I was in California visiting family. My, my grandfather now is in his 90s. His father was an itinerant, you know, Assemblies of God minister. Mm -hmm. But he would he would have like revival meetings in mainline churches up and down the California coast and into yep. Oregon. I mean, it was like old school Presbyterian Episcopalian churches that would invite him to do, you know, so I, I think that that um, maybe, you know, in, in one respect, this is actually sort of like a kind of return, yeah. so to speak, where it's, you know, the there these boundaries were much more porous um, once upon a time in there, and they're becoming a little bit more porous again, I think, as people, I think the the one of the reasons why evangelicalism is so important to think about like megachurch evangelicalism is, is one, as Reese was saying that they have the numbers, but two, even a lot of the um, popular piety of even like mainline folks is shaped by megachurch evangelicalism mm -hmm. in the sense that, you know, if they're listening to Christian radio, it doesn't matter if they're going to the highest, you know, Anglo Catholic church or whatever, or Roman Catholic. Like when, when I was in Philadelphia, we had, good neighbors of ours who were devout Roman Catholics, but like, you know, they're blasting whatever the Christian radio station is, you know, and that's, you know, coming to you from the nearest Bethel church or whatever it is. I don't know. So, you know, I think, I think that there's a kind of, um, we tend to, I think certain people tend to assume that these, these things are like very distinct, you know, particularly in our circles, we have these bespoke theological and ecclesial ideas or whatever, but like for normal people, I think that there's just a lot more boundary, hopping crossing between these sorts of boundaries than yeah. people realize and this is this will be like my one of my last points on on this before we sort of dive into you know the, yeah what it, what is hot dog the meat it? of it yeah, yeah yeah so uh you know when you when you say the word evangelical broadly and you know i used to go to the main lines with my mom you know and dad would whisper to me after church was, but remember you're an evangelical college <laughs> and i'd be like i don't know what that means you know i'd never seen a guitar in a church i had no clue <laughs> you know until i went to college what an evangelical even was um but you know i knew that what she meant is we really believe you know we're really committed to jesus we you know we read the bible in the home and you know there were all these ways in which i could kind of look at my peers in the mainline who were my age be like oh okay yeah there's something a little sort of wacky about us um but evangelical tends to mean kind of stupid, right, in pop culture. Like if you read it in the New York Times, they tend not to be saying this in a in a favorable way, right? Or they'll say like Tim Keller, you know, was was this great pastor of New York City, and he was an evangelical, and they're kind of surprised. Wow, when they have, I know, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, okay, but if you get into these churches and you meet the pastor, 
And I, I encourage you, if you've never really gotten to know evangelicals, try to get, and it's hard, of course, because they're very busy people, but try to get to know a pastor of a large, you know, thousand person uh, evangelical church. I mean, these are, they are always to a person that I've run into well-read people. I mean, they, they are, they're leaders, which means that they're readers, they're intellectually engaged, uh, curious, they're pursuing, you know, knowledge and wisdom. And so again, I'm not, I, I would not be surprised if, if you're building a little, you know, pile of intellectual arguments and conversations in books, you're going to end up attracting some of these people. They're going to be, they're going to be engaged and interested in finding your material and, and puzzling it through much like Tim Keller, right? Who, who, I guess, recommended Protestant social teaching in one of his last classes he ever taught. He tweeted out that people should be reading Brad Littlejohn's book. Uh, and, you know, we had this massive spike in sales. It was like our <laughs> highest one-day sale, you know, sales event ever. Um, and so I, I think there's like, there's no way to separate out what we're up to um, at Davenant as a American Christian, you know, in a, like think tanky, you know, collegium space from just American Christianity in general and American Christianity in general in Protestantism is going to be dominated by the sort of hot dog church American. I guess. Yeah. Sorry. I'll see. Go on. No, no. So I was going to just say like, let's, let's move into the, the kind of meat of, so we talked about like why, why it's important to talk about this, but like, what do we actually mean by hot dog church or mega church evangelicalism? And then this is what I really want to talk about is I, I want to wax rhapsodic about its i want to rhapsodize about the strengths of megachurch evangelicalism because i i sort of rag on it pretty regularly so you know that's Dad, yours. if you're listening <laughs> this is my shout out i won't so anyway but it, but yeah so reese you were you were gonna you were gonna say well yeah so what, what i was gonna say before yeah to segue from what common was just saying about say the pastors of these places um the i guess one of the the parts of the one of the distinctive bits of the dna it would it generally be that it's often built around a charismatic preaching ministry of one guy. Um, you may have an expansive staff team, um, but the way these things, you know, I guess given if we're talking about, especially about non-denom megachurches, these rest on the the ministry of one dude, um, or significantly so. Um, I would think comparable examples in the UK, though we are somewhat less liable but not especially less liable to the downsides of celebrity pastor culture the comparable examples in the uk i think would be similar so we will immediately think of rick warren mark driscoll tim keller um uh, ah, others escaping my 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 uh my memory right now um yes well uh, willow creek his name escapes me now uh, but those are the um that's one of the distinctive features, surely. And that's, to the extent that it's part of Protestantism, arguably one way of thinking about, I've joked about it at the start, but I think we should maybe talk about whether it's true, is low church, mega church-ish Protestantism, kind of everything in Protestantism sort of dialed up, uh, not necessarily taken to an extreme, but if you look at the very distinctive features of the Reformation, a little red cla- klaxon's going to go off somewhere about the sacraments here, and I'm, I'm on board with that, but if you look at the distinctive emphases of the Reformation, what we see in megachurch, low churchness is those things kind of dialed up. One of those being real emphasis on the preached word for the laity again, and then we end up with um, a kind of church model built around preaching ministries, which arguably is actually what you had at the Reformation. So, yeah, so I, yeah my, my, my 
take on this is is that um, megachurch evangelicalism. Because so so to put this in context, like I said, we were visiting family in Southern California, and you wrote a nice and, Twitter thread on this, right? Is this? Yeah, there's a Twitter thread. I did a Twitter thread on the strengths of evangelicalism, but I hadn't been to a megachurch in in years, and so going back, I was just really sort of struck by by several features connected to what Reese was actually just saying. And so having had some time to reflect on it, I think one of the things that hadn't really been, that hadn't hit home for me was the degree to which megachurch evangelicalism, all of its strengths are things, are, are sort of modern um, instantiations of, modern twists on like fairly traditional Christian practices. So think about like, you know, celebrity pastor culture, right? Where you have this sort of like, person who's charismatic with, you know, oratorical abilities and so forth. That's like St. Augustine's description of St. Ambrose <laughs> in the Confessions. Like Ambrose is the, you know, he would just, he would, he would like just talk for, for hours. And Augustine would like just go to hear him talk and was really in awe of him when he finally got to meet him. You know, I mean, so. Well, and this, this was in. Well, Chrysostom, whose name is literally the, the silver tongue. tongue. Yeah, this was in, in juxtaposition with uh, the Manichae, right? Was it Faustus that he. He was like everyone. And he was said a, he was, was a super so letdown. Yeah, yeah. But it was yeah. not great. You know, I went and heard him, and I was like, "There's nothing here." Yeah, but but in that respect, I mean, um, isn't, it, so isn't it partly also so when he meets Faustus? Isn't Faustus also? It's not just that he's sort of underwhelming. It, it, he's he sort of he's quite nice and a bit sort of like he's not he's as obviously sort of, wrong. I think about certain certain things. Obviously wrong, and, and I think and dumb. I, yeah, but I, I might be misremembering, but I, I feel like it's also that he's just quite a nice guy. He's not as oddly uh, Manichaean in, in like his kind of uh, just posture as Augustine is maybe expecting him to be. Like I feel like if he, the impression I get is if he'd come across a bit more like no, this this is the way. Kind of you know he would have been at least a bit impressed by that. Um, a bit more like a kind of you know Mark Driscolly kind of guy. You know, get on the Manichaean bus. Or you'll be the bodies under the bus, you know. It's like he wanted a bit of that. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think, yeah. So, but, 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 you know, like the, you know, long sermons with really moving oratory are have been with the church from the very beginning. So that's like one thing that really just kind of hit me was that, and and I think that there's a place for the kind of attempt. So one of the other things I noticed is that the evangelical churches are really interested in stirring up the emotions. And that can be dangerous, right? I mean, you know, there's all sorts of critiques of evangelicalism being emotive and, and you know, blah, blah, blah. But but there's also, a, I think, a clear sense in the, in the Christian tradition that rhetorical prowess, and then by the time you get to the, the late Middle Ages, certainly there's a certain kind of ecstasy that attends um, music. And, and so you have these different sort of traditions of, of speaking and singing and, that are designed to um, sort of work on the passions of people and to sort of help shape their passions in, in directions that are healthy. And again, that can be misused. No, th this These is, are like as old as, you know. This is my, I, you know, you hear the critique that, uh, you know, an evangelical worship service is a, a TED Talk or is a, um, a TED Talk and a Coldplay concert. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I would just say my, my response to that level of critique would, would be to say, well, you know, TEDx, TEDx talks or TED talks come to us from a tradition that is given to us by Christianity on, on one level. 
or if you want to say that it came as, from the as ancient. do Coldplay, because right. Chris yeah. Martin was raised evangelical. <laughs> right, right, right. Yes, no, but but the modern concert, right? I mean, modern music and the modern concert actually does come out of sacred music, and so the fact that that we then, as people who are using sacred music, are then reappropriating certain aspects of the secularized version of something that was once sacred is like that. This is not us. Like we don't know what to do. What should we? Let's do what they're doing on the stage over there. No, no, no. Over there on that stage, they were looking at the churches and be like, I like that. Let's try that. You know, and so <laughs> it's it's a sort of cross pollination effect, I think, that gives birth to the modern, um, you know, evangelical worship experience that, you know, maybe it's not your taste. That's fine. But the point of church is not your taste. Right. Right. Yeah. Reese, you were going to say something? Yeah. Well, I mean, on that, so. One of the, a question I turn over in my mind with evangelical worship and the the structure and the running and, and the feel of um, evangelical megachurch-ish influenced church services. So when it comes to the question of adiaphora, things things indifferent, um, things you're free to do, free not to do. They have a worship. very healthy view of adiaphora. Well, yes, yes. Maybe not um, in the UK, I don't know, but here it's kind of like you can do whatever the hell you want. So yes, no. but I guess, so, so that's not a healthy view of adiaphora. Though. That's the thing, isn't it? Yeah, well, I, mean, so. I meant healthy as in generous. Yeah, yeah generous, generous, a portion yes. Uh, ro- a robust, a robust <laughs> view of adiaphora. Um, and uh, so that's one of my questions, is, that is, is, is it a sense of adiaphora that, has arguably run away with itself. So you, you can have the Coldplay concert and sort of the you know, Coldplay-esque lyrics through all of your through all of your songs, um, which are behind which you know, behind the sign is a, an internal reality which is just the same as if you were singing Gregorian or Gregorian chants or whatever. But kind of it's often evacuated. I think of kind of questions of uh, what's prudent and what's best. Um, so we could argue about the merits of, you know, particular worship song X and then considerations of well, what are the long term, you know, benefits of introducing songs like that? What's the balance of all the songs we have? Whereas the evangelical attitude is often just, hey, it's a great song. Throw it in there, man. You know, which <laughs> on one level, like, I get that, you know, and I've, I've led worship, you know, musical worship teams for, for several years. And, you know, if it's a, if it's a, just chuck it in there. If it's a, you know, if it's a banger, go for it. But, um, Adiaphora means more than that, you know. It's more than yes, you can, um, but should you? And is it wise and prudent and best and, and whatever? That's that's the question that goes in my mind about the worship question. I, I think yeah. you have those problems though if you're going to use hymns anyway. So you know, I mean, somebody has to pick the hymns, you know, and which A lot hymns? Of hymns are not very good. It's so, some of them are no good, and then some of them, it's like maybe this was not the appropriate week to sing, you know. A mighty fortress or God or, you know, who knows? I don't know. Like, you know, there's, if you're, if you're sort of thinking in that way, you have the temptation to just go with the hymns that hit, that slap and disregard, <laughs> you know, what, what is in the lectionary or what, you know, we're going to be speaking on or what's going on in the life of the community. That temptation, I think, is, is always present. Um, and, you know, on, on the questions about sort of prudence, you know, is it prudent to be holding, your worship services and and reading scripture in a language that nobody in the congregation speaks is their native tongue. Is that is that prudent? You know, is that a shot at the triads, Colin, the traditionalist Catholics? 
It's a shout at anyone who's going to church and listening to the word of God in a language that they do not understand and are not actively trying to understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, it's I like think... one thing if you're going and you're like Russian Orthodox and you don't know Russian, but your grandma does and you're trying to learn Russian. Or, or we could say the same thing about Latin. If you're going to Latin mass and you're trying to learn Latin, power to you. Okay. Mm-hmm. But if you're just going because you're like, it's this magical, mystical, uh, you know, I'm going to let it wash over me, and I want to be like a dirt-eating 14th-century farmer. Yeah, that's how it should. You know, be. that's yeah, that's yeah. that's that's worse than anyway. I'm, it's can not I, can, good can for I, your soul. No, the, but but I think I think the other thing. I mean, so I agree with that. But I think I think the other thing I want to say to Reese though is I I mean obviously you know I agree, but I said I would try to only be nice. And so what I'm going <laughs> to say in response to Reese is that I think the perhaps over generous, but generous apportionment of uh, adiaphora, the, the sort of sense that adiaphora kind of covers a huge range um, within evangelicalism from the way that you structure your liturgy to the songs that you sing to the what you decide to preach on, you know, what sermon series are we going to do? Like these sorts of things is because I think like evangelicalism has this, I think I called it on that thread that I did, this sort of relentless Christocentrism. Mm -hmm. I mean, just like it is all about Jesus all the time, and it's only about Jesus all the time. And maybe it's a little bit also about you, but only insofar as you're related to Jesus all the time. So I I think that that there's the sense that like... um, you know, I mean, it's almost, it's weird. It's sort of like that it was, it was Hauerwas before Hauerwas. You know, what was that? Is it his famous quote is Jesus is Lord and everything else is bullshit or whatever. Yeah. You know I mean? It's that, it's that, sorry, I didn't say it at Duke University <clears throat> Divinity School professor said it, folks. You sorry. can get it on a t-shirt. Like, but the, <laughs> but the point is that, that like, I think that there is that sort of ethos in evangelicalism where it's like, it's really all about Jesus. And if you want to have worship wars, you know, whatever, but like, really it's about Jesus. Yeah. And and I think that's, there's a kind of healthy, I mean, obviously I think it can be overdone, but I think that's admirable in its impulse. Yeah. There's a, there's a, uh, there is a sort of telos to evangelicalism of articulating the gospel in order to spread the gospel. Which then, of course, we would say means also understanding the gospel, and and they, I think they would accept that too. We have to sort of make the gospel intelligible, right, for the sake of the salvation of the people that the gospel is here to save. And yeah, I mean, in in as much as that's the inner meaning of evangelicalism, or that's what the guiding principle of it is, that's the 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 sort of pole under which the umbrella exists. I think it's a good thing, and it needs mm-hmm. to be supported. And one of my feelings when, um, again, I say this as someone reared in you know, the closest equivalent of this in, in the UK, um, despite how I may formulate my own thoughts on how I do things differently or maybe more prudent or whatever, um, I also have that feeling when kind of thinking, oh, I would do this different in worship, whatever, um, check myself with this kind of sense of, yeah, but this is what it sounds like when Gentiles come into the kingdom of God. Um, now, there's a historical, we're a post-Christian society, like Collins just said, you know, it's this kind of Chinese whisper of popular music. We we kind of created this form of music. It's gone out, it's been secularized, and that now we've kind of, you know, readopted it. Um, 
Chinese Whispers for the American audience is the game of telephone. Sorry. Just to clarify. Thank you right. for The more offensive there. British version is apparently Chinese Whispers. So, all right, continue, Reese. I actually, I learned that uh, by reading N.T. Wright. And the first oh, really? time I ever saw it was in his book on Paul. And I was like, what does this even mean? <laughs> I had to go look it up. Yeah, I, I mean, originally it was called Chinese Whispers in America, but gradually, you know, as one person passed it to the next, it just... That's uh, right. <laughs> um, so anyway, so, you know, yes, I, I agree, you know, this isn't like the gospel lands fresh in some tribe in, you know, the jungle, and then they start making their music, and you're like, cool, this is what it sounds like when the gospel goes out to the, the islands and the, and the islands or whatever. Um, but... You know, still, my ancestors, I said this to you guys the other day, my ancestors were like running around this island covered in like blue woad, uh, naked, wearing loincloths, and now I've got like a room full of Anglo Saxons worshipping Jesus. Um, as, as, you know, valid as, you know, I may have kind of prudential arguments for maybe doing things differently, ultimately, this isn't going to look and sound like the temple, and it, it shouldn't. Um, so it's okay if when the gospel goes out, it ends up sounding a bit messy. Um, yeah, and, and and you know, it's easy to sort of talk about it as a as a low church or low cultural or whatever, but I'm not entirely convinced that that's the case. I mean, when you when you actually get involved, like I said about the pastor, right? If you actually get involved at, at an evangelical mega church and you sort of have this guiding principle of like what we're really here for is to connect with Jesus and to to connect people to Jesus. And like, you, you know, you actually, that's like the kind of thing that you could be the mission statement of your local evangelical mm, mega church, mm-hmm. actually. Knowing <laughs> Jesus and making him known. Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, there's so many iterations on that, on that phrase. When you actually do that, one thing you end up doing is you end up creating space for the kinds of groups and communities who are interested in learning more about who Jesus is, more about the history of the church, more about, you know, the, the, the revelation of God and scripture and you end up, you know, running into people like who have a, a strange obsession with like, you know, the the history. I remember, you know, growing up and meeting one of the other people who my mom would say, just remember, he's an evangelical, too. You know, it's like the, the, the few people at the mainline church who she was like, we could really trust these people. You know? The secret handshake. Um, and I remember he was like my uh, my my Sunday school teacher. And he was like, you know, an expert on the history of Israel in the desert in as much as there was a history of Israel in the desert. He knew everything about it. You know what I mean? Or, or, you know, people nowadays, I, I ran into a guy who is just kind of fascinated by the Nephilim and he's, he's doing, you know, he's like a car mechanic and he's doing deep reading on this subject. Um, you know, I think if you go and you look around society at people who are not connected to a community that is committed to the word and you find, you know, you pull your local car mechanics together. You just, their, their, their inner lives, their, their intellectual lives are not as rich. And you know, that it's not important. You don't, you're not saved by having a rich inner or intellectual life, but there is something that is still there in Mm. evangelicalism, uh, which, which gives life to other parts of the life of the, of the members of the community. Right. And so that on what's hanging on that umbrella, you know, pole isn't just the community of churches that are go out there doing this thing, but it's all of the other traditional things like, you know, the, the liberal arts, which are not essential to the gospel. And you're, nobody's up there up front saying that that's what we're doing here. But weirdly, if you go to the main lines, 
you actually do hear people saying things like that. Like, you know, what we're really here for is just the beauty of, you know, still life paintings and watercolor. <laughs> I don't know, you know, weird things. And meanwhile, yeah, yeah. nothing is going on in those churches. Why? Because they've lost that center, which is what you're saying. Yeah, and I think the um, the evangelical low church tradition has a has a kind of, I don't know where the chicken and egg dynamic of it plays out here, but you will find very intense autodidacts among people without a college level education in evangelical churches, I think. I'll go on a limb and say to a higher proportion than in other kinds of churches. Like I you know, so it would be anecdotal evidence at this level, but you know, one of my like very best friends is a guy who's a tree surgeon who like did not do well at school, never academic. Actually drove past him cutting down some trees this morning. <laughs> um and A he has the terrifying strategic mind, like if you ever play like chess or Age of Empires against him, he will just like destroy you. Um but then at the age of like, you know, twenty, twenty one when he finally got serious about his faith, like he was just sort of unleashed on this level of kind of studiousness and hard work and study of the scriptures and theology and preparing for preaching and stuff like that. And I know numerous guys like that. Um and there's an intensity there that can sometimes you'll sometimes feel a bit much. Um, but maybe that's just because I'm, you know, a more sort of diffident, uh, middle class, typical Englishman. So I, I take your guys' point. I want to I want to try something out here. So I take your point about the kind of like intellectual vibrancy of a lot of particular individuals in evangelical churches. So I when I was thinking about like what I want, what I wanted to, 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 to point out, I think we, we all sort of hit on all of it. But what I have is like emotionally compelling, Christocentric. There's a kind of rhetorical prowess and and um, even sophistication. There's cultural literacy. Okay, so you you put all these things together. So what's and, missing? And no, 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 but but, but uh, here, let me try this out on you. I I sort of think that like maybe evangelicalism is the modern, like the contemporary instantiation of some of these like medieval. Um, like ecstatic religious movements where you, you have like, like if you go read like Meister Eckhart's sermons and it's all about, it's like, and you know, all of these mystical things about like God and Jesus uniting with the soul and becoming one and becoming lovers and then separating and become, you know I mean? And, and there, there are these like medieval, like sort of ecstatic movements that have this kind of like difficult relationship to the institutional church. I don't mean like the heretical movements, like the Alvin Jensen's or whatever, but like, the some of the you know master Eckhart, he's always been held in good standing i mean he he was he was he was never condemned uh he died uh and rick well anyway it's complicated he had a trial and he (laughs) passed the trial and then he died whatever um but the 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 point though is that like i it you know you read these accounts of like medieval mystics right or medieval saints and they'll like go in and they'll like look at the host and then they'll be like as i was gazing at the host my sweet Lord, lover of my soul, came down to me and, and spoke to me and I broke down weeping and, and then he said, and then the preacher will come in and do this like two hour sermon in the town square and people will be like, you know, tearing at their clothes and whatnot. Like these are like actually not mm. uncommon occurrences. Now, the institutional church is always, you know, has a kind of difficult relationship to these movements, right? Because it's there on the one hand, they're like, increasing piety on the other hand like religious emotions are really dangerous and you don't want them to get you know kind of out of out of hand or whatever but like it seems to me that evangelicalism is kind of the sort of ecstatic wing of the church i mean it's not but 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 become institutionalized 
Well, sort of. And but do you mean do, do you mean sort of shy of a fully charismatic evangelical? Right, person? right, right. So, so um, it's the sort of middle class ecstatic version. Whereas, like Pentecostalism, I think tends to be <clears throat> just sort of sociologically speaking, like evangelical megachurches of the sort we're talking about tend to be like middle, upper middle class. Pentecostalism tends to be more working class. Mm-hmm. Um, Though not always. I mean, Pentecostalism can also be middle class. Um, um, so, but but I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Is that is that just like totally crazy, or is no, that, that like a plausible read? I, I I've had a similar thought this past uh, skeptical term. <laughs> well, Colin, Colin, no, I thought was what I going to say. Um, in our uh, one of our Davenant Hall classes, which I took this term philosophy as a way of life with uh, uh, Professor Joseph Minnick, friend of the show, colleague of. Of, of uh, all of us um, talking about philosophy and Christianity's relation to it and uh, I've been having this feeling as you look through the contradiction of philosophy as a way of life um, that evangelicals to me feel like they meet the descriptions of the philosopher um, so like one of the one of the reasons that the Jews are regarded as as a nation of philosophers like when the ancient you know Hellenistic people start to kind of get their heads around them, one of the things is, oh, they, they pray to God, no, so they talk about God, they pray to him, and they look at the stars, um, but which I think he means, like, astrology right, and astronomy, rather than, like, going, ooh, well, stars. Um, but, you know, but that, I think it basically means, like, an interest in creation um, and kind of the order order of it. And I, well, like, that's that kind of sounds like a died-in-the-wool normal evangelical. You know, they talk about God, they go to church, they go to midweek Bible study, they, like, or in the men's ministry WhatsApp group, they pray, um, talk about the stars, that, that if they're interested in the world as made by God, um, and kind of think about him day to day, then I think they hit those criteria. So I feel like evangelicals, as well as maybe being the the heirs of the medieval ecstatic, uh, whatever we want to call them, um, are also, it seems to me, would it would impress a Greek philosopher um, if they, yeah, if they realise the, the, the kind of intensity with which they live, the spiritual self-examination, two, which they constantly Two other things to. To, your, uh, to your philosophy, uh, Stu. They, um, the, the practices of evangelicalism <laughs> lead to self-control in one way or another. There's, a, there's an emphasis on you know, gaining a certain level of self-mastery. They will talk to you about managing your finances, these kinds of things. Uh, you know, gaining control of your desires through, through, and I'm not, I'm trying to be vague about the method there because I think it's the mm-hmm. Holy Spirit ultimately, and also, um, they don't fear death. You know, the n- number of times that I've heard an evangelical pastor talk about, you know, if t- if tomorrow's my day, so be it. Like, if it's up, it's up to God. I'm, I don't fear it. I know the eternal destiny of my soul. Mm-hmm. I did not hear that growing up in the main line very much. Mm-hmm. Um, can I, can I say the other? Another way, this is, uh, but this was just a funny example that hit me. The other way that evangelicalism is like medieval ecstatic sort of movements, which I'm sticking with. It's not philosophy. Yeah, so I, I, I kind of, I, I kind of just right. didn't address that and just talked about my own similar. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. No, that's fine. Yeah. But the other way is that that a lot of these pastors, when they get run out of town, will just set up shop somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, but which I think gets to the sort of uh, anti-institutional kind of populist nature of a lot of this, right? Is that there? There also is this kind. Kind of, you know, the spirit moves where he wills, and so um, there's benefits to that 
and drawbacks to it. Um, well, I would so, say, you know, to, to respond to your thing, Anzi, I am skeptical. I, I, I see what you're saying. There's certainly an element of that, but there's also, so it, it is both sort of the, uh, the effervescent and, you know, bu- bubbling up sort of spiritualism that you're talking about, but it's also the institution that contains that stuff because, you know, every evangelical church you go to has some people in it who are, you know, having these kinds of experiences and they want to start a little ministry and they want to do their their thing and they're writing a book or whatever. But then there's also like the elders who are, you know, the local businessmen that are like, I don't know, you know, the point is Jesus and getting, you know, people to know him. And so like, in as much as that's what you're doing, we want to help you out. And if it seems like something else is going on, we're going to... Yeah, I guess I think to... it, like the evangelical church maybe is like a city counts a medieval city that's undergoing one of these religious revivals. And so the elders are like, ah, you know, damn it. There goes the band again, trying to get everybody hopped up on the ecstasy of whatever. Okay, pastor, you got to go talk to the people and like, you know, channel the, the passions in a, you know, coherent direction. And then I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm, maybe I'm straining here, but, uh, <laughs> but that was my, that was my sort of galaxy brain. Galaxy well, brain my too. galaxy brain is if you want to understand Hot Dog Church, you have to go and listen to Lana Del Rey. <laughs> there we go. That's what you've got to do. On her newest album. On her newest album. And the idea of this whole episode began with Colin <laughs> binge listening to Lana Del Rey's back catalogue on the journey to the National Convivium. Well, but on her newest album, she plays at five minute long sermon clip mm-hmm. from the head pastor of Church Home, which is this evangelical church in Seattle, somewhere know. on the it's Pacific Northwest. Um, it was affiliated with Hillsong, but like Justin Bieber has gone there and like all these celebrities go there mm-hmm. um, or have gone there. You can find videos of Justin Bieber like singing with the band of this church. It's kind of crazy. Um, well, and uh, and and the the like inner meaning of this kind of clip from the message on the album is it's really a reflection on the media culture that we're in. And of course, evangelicals would have more insight on that because they're the ones who are tuned in to like, how can we use the media culture that we're in to try to spread the gospel? Mm -hmm. But of course there's a certain inner contradiction or problem that you run into because as you start memeing yourself out there into the, you know, multiverse to try to get people the gospel, the question is, am I really trying to get people the gospel? You know, it's, it's a little bit like the same problem you have with social justice. You know, at, at least some percentage of the people who are out there saying black lives matter are really just saying my life should matter. Pay attention to me. You know, not, I'm not saying everybody, but there's a portion Similarly, right, there's a problem, and this is what the sermon gets at, and it's a really interesting question. Some of the people who are out there saying, like, you should really love Jesus are really saying from stage, because they know they're on stage now, you should love me. And, you know, a a self-awareness of that problem is demonstrated in that sermon in a sort of disturbing way, and it's a dark moment. Um, Mm. And it gets at this kind of very Protestant, from my perspective, very, very, you know, Calvinistic, very Augustinian insight that we are deceptive we're self-deceptive our hearts are dark we're fallen people and we're really in need of the gospel so then where is the gospel in the album it's actually in kintsugi 
the mm-hmm. the yep. song that she has, which is on the same album. And I have an amazing actually, song. An I haven't looked at song. them in relationship to one another, uh, like where they are in the album. But I think it's towards the end. It's um, the it starts the second half of the album. Okay, yeah. So it starts the second half of the album, and um, and you know this this image Kintsugi is the art of putting together a broken pot or whatever with like gold, and so that the mm-hmm. pot looks even more beautiful now that it's repaired after it's been broken. And, you know, this is like a Kintsugi itself, right? Is I actually think another reference back to Hot Dog Church, because I think Tim Keller was sort of famous for using this in a sort of hip way that was going to appeal to the, the people Tim Keller's trying to appeal to, of talking about the gospel, because the gospel sort of takes us like Japanese, the Japanese art of Kintsugi, and it takes us as broken people, and it's sort of God, God through his word, through his work on the cross, knits us back together again. And our resurrected bodies, just as our saved selves, are going to be somehow more beautiful than the original creation that we were intended to be, we're going to be. Sort of out of our flawed, fallen story, God makes a better story. Out of our mistakes, God makes a greater success than we were going to have on our own anyway. And so, it, you know, in my mind, um, Lana Del Rey is sort of like, if, if what, what, what Hot Dog Church is, is sort of like, looking at the secularized culture, seeing that they still like all the stuff that the church gave the culture, right? That the secularized culture came out of the Ted talk and the, and the Coldplay concert. And Mm -hmm. we're going to reappropriate the Ted talk and the Coldplay concert. Well, what happens when somebody who's like a media celebrity looks at hot dog church and then decides to go out and make art? Well, there it is, right? You can kind of like, you can see the reference back to the the sort of values of what Hot Dog Church can offer the culture right there in the music of one of the geniuses of our day, Lana Del Rey, who you should all go listen to. Okay, rant over. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, I was I was feeling bad about harping on the medieval ecstasy thing, and then Colin just went on a five-minute-long <laughs> thing about Lana Del Rey. So now I'm feeling great about myself. Um, Which is what but, Lana Del Rey wants you to feel, Anzi. That's right. <laughs> All right. Much well, like um, Jesus. I think, I guess, final final thoughts, and then we should we should probably uh, start start wrapping it up. I, I, the final thing I'll say, this is just kind of an observation, but the sermon that I heard when I went to um, this, you know, big church in, in Orange County um, was very interesting. I mean, it was it, this this pastor was talking about how, like, you know, the Ten Commandments aren't a part of our culture anymore. And, you know, they, they want prayer out of schools. And it was a very fascinating sermon because he was starting mm-hmm. a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. But one of the things he said in this, it, I you know, I thought um, one of the things he said that was really fascinating to me was, you know, as a culture, children used to be raised knowing the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, and the Apostles' Creed. Mm-hmm. He said, so they had a basic confession of faith. They knew what God required of them, and they knew how to ask God for their sustenance and forgiveness. And what was so fascinating to me is that at no point in this service did anyone recite the Lord's Prayer, (laughs) the Ten Commandments, or the Apostles' Creed. So I'm sitting there listening to this pastor talking about what has happened to our culture in a really like, I mean, you know, a lot of the sermon was, you know, not I wasn't the fondest of it, but, you know, in, in, in fairly like rhetorically effective ways, he's saying, like, look what we've lost as a, as a society. Everything's going crazy, you know, blah, blah, blah. But on the other hand, it's not like the sort of liturgical practices of this church seemed primed to address the 
the problems that they were sort of seeing as people on the front lines of sort of California surf culture, you know, mm. in Orange County, right? So I, I, I just thought that was an observation. I don't really know what to make of that, uh, but that I'll just kind of, that'll be my last sort of well, thing. Well, it's, it's interesting because I feel like evangelicalism, if I had to sort of take its temperature at the moment, it seems to be, be becoming aware that one thing the mainline church did it might not have been doing as great of a job sort of pointing people to Jesus and centering everyone on Jesus, but it was transmitting a whole lot of culture and the evangelical church in its less formalized sort of practice and, you know, ways of living doesn't seem to transfer the culture, but it's becoming aware of that, like how the loss of that culture actually makes mm. it much harder to focus everyone on Jesus, right? Is, if and that that's, that's what I take to be, you know, the meaning of this observation that you're you're making. They he's aware, like, wow, everybody used to know this. Wouldn't it be great if they did? But there's mm -hmm. a sort of missing realization that, like, oh yeah, it's because we don't do any of that stuff at our church because we're just trying to get people to show up and yeah. have their orange mocha and like listen to the TED talk, the that's Jesus TED talk. Yeah, the Jesus TED talk. Yeah, that's good. Any any final thoughts from you guys before we wrap it up? Uh, and move to the next segment. Uh, I'll just say, look, if you go to if you go to a hot dog church, I, I hope you feel welcome listening to the podcast. You know, I, 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 we poke a little fun, but it's it's partially at ourselves. If you don't go to a hot dog church, you know, we love you too. <laughs> if you're if you're one of our ACNA bros or, or a Baptist bro or something, that's fine. And but more uh, importantly, as I learned at hot dog church two weeks ago, Jesus also loves you. He loves you. That's the most yeah. important thing. And he loves me. That, that I actually, this, this will be my actual final reflection is just mm -hmm. the degree to which like being at a mega church, the number of times that they were just telling me that God actually loves me was really kind of extraordinary. It was very powerful mm -hmm. to me, frankly. I was, I like came out of there and I was like, wow, God actually loves me. And that's just a really kind of amazing thing. So anyway, um, with that, we're going to move to our next segment. Now, normally at this point in the show, you know, our listeners will know we, we talk about what we're reading. Today, we're just going to kind of reflect on on the good old days, on the origins of the Ad Fontes podcast. Because, um, you know, it's like it's two and a half time. years, right? So, it's like, yeah, yeah. yeah. This is episode 76, I think, or 77. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so. when we when we first started, it, you know, it's the height of the pandemic. We we knew we wanted to launch some sort of podcast product that was more of an in-house product. You know, we had the the other podcast, the Pilgrim Faith podcast, which is more like let's interview guests from outside of Davenant. We wanted it to be, you know, this is what's <clears> going on inside of Davenant. People who wanted to plug in and be part of the network in a deeper sense could come here and know what we're thinking as an organization, host internal conversations, that kind of stuff. And so Anzi and I recorded an initial version of this. I I think it was just over two and a half years ago. Yeah. And my friends, it was bad. It was so <laughs> awful. Colin was like, Anzi, we've got to do a podcast. I was like, uh, okay. So I'm like, that's yeah, that's a great idea, Colin. And then we recorded. We were like, okay, we got to do a trial run first. So what are we going to do? And then we, we like, oh, yeah, it was just – it was. It and was, I'm glad we did a trial run because otherwise we, yeah. if we had released that <laughs> – it would have been awful. And for, I've not heard it, so but from what I'm led to believe, this is one of those, you know, you get like, you know, so-and-so's bootleg demo album released like 40 years later. <laughs> it and, like, never oh, man, yeah. and you're like, Yo, this is terrible. Why, well, this, why has anyone decided this? Because there's nothing else left to release 40 years on. That's why. I, I mean, also, we didn't have like, we didn't have mics. 
we didn't have i mean it was like it was like two guys on a zoom call drinking a beer and i think we even like it was extended banter we actually learned a lot of things that became useful for this right so for example people have commented on how we try not to have banter on the front end and that's part of what we learned is like everybody's doing banter sitting around talking about your beer it's not, there's a reason that doesn't happen on TV. People don't just, <laughs> stupid. nobody comes on a late night show and is like, hey, tell me about what you had for breakfast. You know? <laughs> the only, the only time that ever works, and Americans, I think this will be sadly, this is inaccessible to you. The only time that is ever good in broadcasting is on Test Match Special, which is the cricket coverage on BBC Radio 5 Live when you're there for hours and they just gently talk in between talking about the cricket and the controversial stumpings and Australia oh. cheating and things like that, generally talk about the, you know, the number 29 bus. and uh, Our version of this is baseball announcers. Yeah. During a yeah. slow yeah. baseball game, they'll start talking about, you know, oh, yeah, they sowed the field with a new kind of grass. Oh, I recently sowed my lawn with a new kind of grass. <laughs> what, did, what did you use? Oh, I had to switch to a shade version. <laughs> is this like in the stadium or like listening on the radio? It's on the radio more. Yeah. But what, what, what our listeners may not know is that Reese is uh, the entire production value. All of the good things about our production are the result of Reese's hard work behind the scenes. Colin and I don't, I mean, Colin upped our mic game. So that was, that was mm-hmm. you know, he's mm-hmm. been very insistent on that. But Reese does all of the editing and gives, you know, chose the software and stuff. So the first time Colin and I really were literally just on a Zoom call recording, we're like, how do we record this thing? What do we do with the audio file? I don't know. It sounds terrible. And, um, and Reese, uh, this we'll just do a, a quick shout out here, I guess. But Reese also has another podcast, um, the name of which escapes me now. It, 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 it is lies heavily dormant. So um, oh, okay, but but and so I thought I was like, wait, Reese knows what he's doing. Maybe Reese can save us. And so Colin and I reached out to Reese, and and uh, and the the chemistry just kind of you know worked, and we kind of took it from there. So that was it's like the inverse of World War Two. The Americans were struggling. And, uh, and we were saved, <laughs> saved by the English. <laughs> we don't get to say that often, yeah. but we can say it here proudly. Yeah. Do you guys have favorite episodes? Uh, just before we before we are, are done with this one, um, per- I'm personally, the one that I go back to is uh, I, I liked our poetry episode. I just thought it was interesting. It it was actually like one of those moments where live on mic, I sort of thought through stuff for the first time. You know, I'm like having. So I'll go back to it because I'll say like, oh yeah, what did I say there? That was it. I, guess, mm. I should write that down. I think um, a favorite of mine was actually one I wasn't on, uh, but that is probably because I then just got to really sit and listen to it. You guys did one on why is uh, why is preaching not a sacrament, mm. um, which was just, I feel like it was the best of sort of the kind of things, materials and forms of arguments and thinking that we try and kind of pull out at Davenant. Um, and it was just a pleasure to sit back and listen to that. It was like started as like a conversation in the in the group chat, and then uh, yeah, often often these things happen. Then we're like, this is all good stuff. Shut up, save it for the show. And this was one of those. Um, and then I think our um, uh, hey, some of my best friends are Catholic. Can I be friends with a, a Roman Catholic episode? Is probably a, a classic and like very oh, much one. on the very much on the vector of questions that Davin and kind of should be answering and that one kind of thing uh, thing people come to us for that one is memorable for the uh 
angry and disturbed <laughs> people who contacted Davenant and said, oh, we're not so sure these guys are right. Yes, yeah. you can be friends with the Roman Catholic. What? Yeah. Can you it, believe they it, said it, that? It's, it's notable for that episode almost being Auntie's last ever episode of the <laughs> I don't think there was ever, I don't think there was ever, well, I don't know. I don't remember. To be honest, I have a really terrible memory and I don't have the list in front of me. I'll just say that every episode has been just a real uh, delight with 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 you guys just getting to, to hang out and talk about issues that matter to us that i wouldn't normally think about sometimes because sometimes you know i get outvoted just saying um <laughs> uh, no <laughs> but um but it's been a really it's been a real been a real pleasure and uh an honor and i will miss it, um the show and getting to, to speak with both of you but i will listen eagerly and we will have you back on you so just yeah, lest well, people think yeah. you're gone forever you'll be you'll be uh, among the guests uh but you will not be a host yeah, yeah, and Onsi, Onsi's you know departure and his computing responsibilities, you know Onsi's devoted himself to the life of the mind and to his studies, and we should say he's he's an exemplary scholar. He's doing work and research in. I wouldn't overstate it, Reese. I mean, an unknown. Going, hopefully, I, I, going I can't say be. I'm a pleb, but uh, you know. <laughs> He's he's doing research in this whole area of Christian history that like nobody knows the first thing about. Mm-hmm. Basically, like I think Onsi's doing just this kind of thing that scholars want to do. I would I well, should want to do. He's finding new stuff. He's doing the real ad fontesing. There's no there's, I guess it's not an irony. There's a fittingness in that he's kind of moving on from this bit of the ad fontes machine because he's doing some real ad fontesing in his studies. And so on that level. I kind of we I'm just always sort of excited for you to go and do your thing and tap you up for for stuff in the future. And actually, I want to say here as a matter of public record, actually, I've asked Auntie to write me four thousand words of a piece called "In Defense of Descartes." Okay, it's out there. The gauntlet is down, and so until that piece appears in Advantes in some form, just badger Auntie regularly for where that piece is. Okay. Well, thank you for the kind words, Reese, and for the invitation to harass me. Um, but uh, with that, actually, we're, um, uh, we've got a spotlight today that um, is is uh, maybe relevant for fans of the show. So what's the spotlight again? Absolutely. So we're um, it, it's going to be August 12th. We're having our second annual Bay Area Davenant Dinner. If you're a listener and you're in California or you want to come to California on, on business or something, uh, we are... Throwing a dinner at a at a country club in the Bay Area, you can find the information for that in the show notes. It's going to be in the East Bay, so if you're not, you know familiar with the parts of the Bay Area, um, at a at a country club, Brad Littlejohn will be flying out to be speaking on education, and so we'll probably be you know handing out copies for people who buy tickets uh, of our book, Reforming Classical Education, and um, you know it's also you know just kind of part of the end of the year fundraising drive thing that we do end of the fiscal year so we will mm-hmm. be making an ask the tickets aren't it's not a cheap dinner but it is a very nice dinner uh you know if you're gonna if you're gonna if you are in the area you're gonna come you know have a suit or a dress or something along those lines um and Anzi will actually be in town so i'll be there hey. um, Brad will be speaking, but Anzi will be in town because the week before that, if you're in the Bay Area and you want to, you know, hang out with us, Anzi will be presenting a paper at the Bay Area St. Thomas Aquinas Association, uh, which will be meeting in the, in the peninsula at St. Patrick's Seminary. Uh, and I, I have been leading that society for the last few years. And uh, so it's going to be thrilling to get to hear him come and explain why none of the Thomists in the Bay Area should be Thomists. 
And then to watch them seethe and rage and rip him apart like uh, he was in the Bacchaea and, and you know, devour him. Um, yeah. But hopefully he'll actually survive that ordeal to meet you when you come then a week later to the... <laughs> to the fundraiser. To the fundraiser. It, it, it's amazing that that is, the, that is the sort of most dangerous demographic for Onsi on his trip to San Francisco. <laughs> yes, it's the conservative, traditionalist, Roman Catholic Thomists. Um, yeah. You yeah. got to be aware of them. You know, they're, they're, rough, they're a rough crowd. Uh, no, I, yeah, pl- please do consider coming, consider making it your gift. Those are the kinds of things that, uh, that really sustain the organization of the Davenant Institute and allow us to continue offering these kinds of things. And if you are in the Bay Area and you want to hang out with Anzi and I, we would love to see you genuinely. So even if you can't make either of those two dates, he'll just be around hanging around my house all week. So, yep. Yep. That's right. That's right. Well, um, thank you gentlemen once again for, um, your generosity and, uh, being just the, the best co-hosts and, and friends that anyone could ask for it's been a real real honor working with you for our listeners um we are the editors this is the ad fontes podcast and colin and reese will see you next time